Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Doman and Stephen Craig, and this is episode two hundred and nineteen. So, Parker Brewery twenty twenty is coming along, right? Yes, it is coming along. Um, we missed the April fourth brew date, the first brew date, though. Um, I am still bending tubes. <laughs> how, how much of a bitch is it to bend a steel tube? So I, so I have a proper bending die and everything for half-inch tubing. So bending is actually not a problem. The problem was because I, I cheaped out and I bought stainless on a roll. And then you straightened it. In quotes. Oh, it wasn't really straight. So it's not... Well, it's fine enough to, like, bend it because you can, like, tweak it. Because it's... it's the tubes aren't completely straight because they still got kind of a bend to it, but it's like, you know, over a whole eight-foot section, you got like maybe two inches of bend. So it's not too big of a deal. The problem is when you unbend tubing, it tends to not make it round anymore. Oh, no. You, you got like a football cross-section? A little bit. And, and then that probably doesn't bend very well. Well, bending again is fine. It's when okay. you put it into the compression fitting. <laughs> oh, is the oh, problem. Because <laughs> now it's what one cross section is basically wider or has a larger diameter than half an inch. Mm. And so it doesn't fit in the compression fitting. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Um, and so I think I'm going to keep going and bending these tubes that I already cut and stuff. And I'm going to order a half inch, just straight tube. So I yeah. don't have to unbend it and then cut that up. Basically build templates out of my uh, not so round tubing. Oh, and then cut the good stuff. And then cut the good stuff and then use those as templates. You know, that's that's actually a really, I mean, overall, you'll probably be way happier with it. It'll probably look nicer and it'll probably be like exactly what you want. Yeah, it's just still one of those. At least it's not that much money out because I think it was only. I think I spent eighty dollars on the rolls stainless, so it's not a lot of money. It's still one of those like, man, I'm wasting material now, because like you can't make it round again. Mm, yeah, I guess the not. only way to do that is if you had a die and you could redraw it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but I don't. I can't do that in my house. I'm wondering. I I swear I've seen. Well, okay, so like. Never mind. I, I guess I was thinking I've seen some copper tube uh, tools that uh, can um, expand the the ID of a hole. Uh, yeah, they make, uh, I guess, tubing expanders. It's, yeah. That's for more like making slip fits. Right. Um, but I was wondering if you, if there was something similar to that that would recircularize the tubes. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Maybe that exists, but um, I guess I'll look after this podcast that, that that's a thing. Because I bet I wonder if one of those tools is basically cheaper than buying another hundred and forty bucks of tubing. Maybe, yeah. But because I, mean, I mean, how much? How much of the actual tube for in most cases is it going into the compression fitting? Like the only last, two or three inches. The last inch, actually, yeah. So could you just like put that on a mandrel and hit it with a hammer to make it circular again? I tried like tapping it round. Yeah. That. It does. That just takes way too much time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes more than eighty dollars worth of time. Yeah, I've tried actually using a compression fitting that I've messed up because I I soldered it wrong. Because um, it has the right uh, ID, right? Mm -hmm. I actually tried hammering that onto a tubing mm -hmm. and then pulling it off. It still won't. You need something inside. You need a mandrel, basically. You need something yeah. inside to push the wall out. Uh, correctly, and I don't have that kind of tool. Hmm. So. Yeah, it's almost like it's almost like something that has a smaller ID. You slide it in the tube, and then you screw something into it so it would expand. Yeah, but the thing is, you can't expand it too much, so you need an outer die as well right. to prevent the expansion too much. So you might as well just buy a new tube. <laughs> yeah, because just slamming a uh, compression fitting over it with a hammer to try to like squish it back to shape does not work. It no, just, it, that that's that probably would work with copper, because uh, copper is soft enough. But the stainless is so hard, it just will not. It just doesn't work, and and it completely defeats the whole purpose of a compression fitting. Yes, 
Yeah, the, you yeah. wouldn't want to do all that work and then find out that you have leaks because you, it wasn't perfect. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> Didn't we talk about this like three weeks ago about like unforeseen consequences and projects that always trip you up? Yeah. I thought I was so far ahead of the game and I started... I, I sent a picture to Steven of my first one, and that one I, w- I was like putting in the compression fitting. I'm like, that feels a little. It should just fit right into the fitting. It shouldn't be like I'm ramming it into the fitting to make it fit. And then on my second one, I actually looked at it because it actually did not fit. It did not go into the compression fitting, and I'm like, oh, that's actually like a square with kind of rounded corners on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that so, sucks. Yeah, it is what it is, though. Yeah, it just um, gives you more time to do the project. Man, I want to be done with this thing. <laughs> um, and that's why I'm saying Dillman Brewery 2021. <laughs> no, it's going to be this year. I'm going to tonight. I'm going to order the either if I. I think I'm just going to order the new tubing. Yeah, that sounds like the easiest way. Um, I really wish I could buy it locally, but before all this um, pandemic coronavirus stuff. I did go to like my local um, steel shop, and they didn't carry this kind of stainless I need. Uh, ma- they mainly carry industrial stuff. But think about so. it—you have twenty-five feet of practice bends before you before like game time, you know. That is true, and I actually was like, I'll have to send you pictures of my second one. It looks really good. <laughs> so, so are you are you eyeballing the bends, or are you actually measuring and doing like bend radiuses and stuff? Um. Uh, so. Uh, what I am doing is I'm taking a um, I'm taking like a coat hanger material to basically I kind of um, I guess draw it out in 3D space with the coat hanger mm-hmm. bend do all the bends and stuff and then um, and then for the radius I am using the my my uh, I guess it would be the ID die the bender. Because uh, it's a it's a five D, so it's, it would be a two and a half inch radius. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, I'm doing that, and then that, and then I'm basically replicating that um, in the stainless, and it gets kind of close, and then you kind of have to hand bend a little bit to get the whole fit just right, because the coat hanger is you know uh, what less than an eighth in, inch in diameter so it's and it flexes a little bit more but so 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 your bends uh you're allowing like an extra two or three degrees for some slop <laughs> yeah 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 totally 88 degrees to get into that hole not 90 <laughs> yeah but it seems to be fine I, i've done two and i only stopped because i just like you could not put the tubing into the compression fittings yeah that sucks yeah it's, it's, what it, basically i probably when i straightened it i probably misaligned my the straightener fixture but whatever you know it just more time and money <laughs> burning a big hole in that thing in that project <laughs> oh yeah 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 it's gonna look nice when it's done for for all of those who who don't know home brewing is not cheaper than just going to the store and buying beer no it's not at, at best it's the same cost yes I mean, unless you're one of those guys that's like, I don't know, hitting 40, 50 gallons at a time, you might get some economy of scale there. It's a lot Maybe. of beer to drink, though. That is a ton of beer. <laughs> like, yeah, that's that's enough to kill you. <laughs> I mean, it depends on the person. <laughs> so last week I was talking about those rotary switches and uh, how I was going to order them. and Well, I mean, I did order them, and they actually arrived yesterday. Uh, and, and the very first thing I did was I, it was, I bust open this package and I get these rotary switches and I start looking at the backside of them and, and all the pins. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go find every data sheet I can find for these switches, which, cause I know there's multiple data sheets out there for these things because the internet has history of older data sheets and what's currently available from the manufacturer, what you can find on Mauser right now. Spark fun sells these. I bought these from tubes and more. They have a data sheet. Well, they have an image, not a data sheet. Uh, and the funny thing is, out of every data sheet, I was looking for one, just one that told me the story, told me like what I wanted to know without having to purchase these switches beforehand. And yeah, I yeah. only found one that had any kind of information. 
and it only has information for one variant of the Switch, which I've actually bought two Switches. I bought one that was a uh, one-pole 12 position and another one that's a two-pole 6 position. And I found a data sheet that shows the pins for the uh, two-pole 6 position, but it doesn't show the pins for the one-pole 12, so you wouldn't be able to figure that out because they are different. Uh, and the funny <laughs> thing is the only data sheet I found was like buried way deep in a Google search uh, for like I searched under the family name of this. You had to go past page two. Yeah, like nobody goes that far. <laughs> no, it, it Google image searches, and I was like, oh my god, one of these actually exists. And lo and behold, it get this, it was the only data sheet that actually had pins numbered on them. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like really? Uh, and in fact, one of the other data sheets, I think it's the one from SparkFun, and and in no way am I dogging SparkFun on this, but um, it has a footprint on there. It doesn't say if the footprint is from the top side of the board or the bottom side of the board, and it's wrong. Like, if you look at the bottom of, the, of this and you design to that footprint, which I did on that project I did earlier in the year. Yeah, years ago. It was, it's incorrect. Uh, and on top of that, it, the footprint for the data sheet on SparkFun shows a um, like a PCB mounting hole, or not mounting hole, but like an anti-rotation hole, which that doesn't even exist on the device. Hmm. So it's just like, oh, come on. So, I mean, and, and here's the thing. It's like, I purchased the rotary switches that have solder lugs, not the actual, like, solder pins for through-hole. Uh, yeah, yeah. In this particular situation on my previous project, I bought the PCB pin ones. They're, they're identical. Like, the switch, is, the only thing that's different about the switch is, you know, the actual the, the pin, the, pin the head looks different. So, uh, you know, this should work for a, uh, the footprint, the, uh, sorry, the through-hole actual footprint, but I just think it's funny that these exist out there and you can't you just can't know unless you purchase it like I did. Yeah, uh, yeah. And this is the thing about these switches that I that I like about them is they're really beefy, they're really chunky, they can handle high voltage, they can handle pretty decent current, they're readily available. They have a lot of different options, so if you want multiple poles, multiple positions, uh and they feel really nice. Like they have a real nice like chunk when you turn Good them. detent to them. Yeah, like a really excellent detent. Um, and it's and just the, you don't know cheap. what you're getting when you buy them. Yeah, I, I, that's that's the part that I just cannot understand. Especially like, okay, so Mauser sells these as a as a part. If you look at that the data sheet for Mauser, it's just basically a link directly to the manufacturer, which was Alpha Taiwan. If you go to their website, I was like, well, maybe the link is wrong. So I went right to their website to find the part number. No, it's seriously just that data sheet. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe I should hit up Alpha and be like, "Is there like a secret data sheet somewhere that is like all the information that I need to know?" Regardless, I have them now, so these are going to be like, I'm going to store these away, and these are my like every time I need a rotary, this rotary switch, which I've used these on multiple projects in the past. I've always done wire solder to them, uh, other than the macro amp, but now I can just reference them like straight up <sighs> so uh, did you order a lot of them or is that just your reference then? this is my reference so now yeah. i can design around these unless you order another one and it's different yeah I, you know that at this point i wouldn't would not surprise me at all and then you would just use your reference part <laughs> <laughs> right right and then the one that you ordered that was incorrect is your new reference part so i'm doing something <laughs> a little bit ridiculous with this i've actually I've actually made this before. I might have even shown it to you, Parker. In oh, fact, wait, hold on. I'm going to guess. Yeah. Is this the foam core board <laughs> amplifier? Yeah. That was one of my favorite things. It's the, probably the most dangerous thing in your old shop. Oh, it was amazing. Well, I'm, so I, I'm resurrecting that project. So basically what I did was I, I, made, um, I made a preamp, a tube amplifier, that uh, every component was variable. So every capacitor was on a rotary switch with 12 different values. Every every resistor was a resistor, a small value in, in series with a pot. And uh, I, I built this entire thing on a foam core board. It looked like a science fair project, and it was awesome. It actually worked out really yeah, it well. It totally looked like someone in, like, 12th grade made it. Well, so 
That's not dogging your your ability, by the no, way. No, no, because like the whole point of that project was to do it in an afternoon, and I built that entire thing in an afternoon, and it was awesome. It's just like sharpie marks all over it, showing how the the uh, ampli like it was like the amplifier schematic. It was the full on schematic on it, yeah, where yeah. I just drew lines to the pots and the switches and stuff. Yeah, it was legit, dude. So, so I, I actually i i was thinking about that the other day because I'm doing some more development right now um, on some on some amp stuff. And and I was thinking about it uh, with that particular idea. I built like a fixed preamp. I mean, even though everything was variable, it was still like I couldn't change the order of how things were. Uh, it was four cascaded stages, uh, amplifying stages. And I was like, wait, what if I were to build each one of those stages as an individual PCB? And, and then have a patch panel and have and well sort of I'm not even getting that fancy just like wire them together with like maybe terminal blocks or even alligator clips uh, because I have this high voltage power supply I can really uh, I mean I I most of that work is done if I just have like a PCB that is a triode stage where I can vary everything and then maybe another PCB stage that's like a common cathode stage and then another one that is a phase inverter stage. Like I can just connect them however I want and get amp designs going in, you know, 30 minutes as opposed to having to design a whole amp just to find out if I like it. You just described a... Um, a dev board? No, 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 no. A, if you did it that way, you basically could build a... Oh, um... What's the the synthesizer modules? What are they called? Eurorack modules. Eurorack. You're basically making a Eurorack amplifier. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's All exactly. All the stages what are just module, and you just like crunk. That's that's and exactly then, what I'm doing. And uh, the the thing is, like a lot, like so, they like Fender amplifiers. They usually put their tone controls. Uh, right after the first stage. So you, your signal comes in, it gets amplified by one stage, and then there's tone controls. And then there's amplification stages before it goes to the power amplifier. Marshall amplifiers do it the exact opposite way. Your signal comes in, it gets amplified three times at least, and then there's tone controls. So I was thinking, well, what if I just had my tone controls as like a plug-in block, and then I could say... What does it sound like if it's after the first stage or the second stage? Or what if uh, it was the third stage and there was another stage after that? Like, I instead of having to just, like, spend hours wiring these things up to figure it out, I was like, what if I just modularize it? So we're going to try it see what it sounds like. Um, like I said, I've done this before, just not modular. I made one preamp with everything variable, and it, was, it sounded great. Yeah, you had one, you had one architecture. Exactly. Right. If if so you want each one of those a, stages, I could break out into its own individual block. Yeah, you want a yeah. variable architecture, variable parameter, um, right? Right. Amplifier. Well, and and yeah, like so, like take the tone controls for example. A lot of times in in amplifiers, in traditional amplifiers, there's um, uh, they call them TMB, treble, middle, bass tone stacks, and it's it's called a tone stack because if you look at the schematic, there's three potentiometers on top of each other. Uh, but that's not the only version of tone controls out there. There's lots of variants out there. So, you know, why not just make, you know, each one its own little development block and try it out. See what you like, what you don't like. Uh, Va Vav Parker's writing something in our... Vap. <laughs> the variable architecture and parameter amplifier. Ooh. Vapa. Vapa. I like that. It's like the DARPA, but for nerds. <laughs> <laughs> Variable architecture and perimeters, not perimeters, parameters, parameters. amplifier. I like I how I like how uh, you you included the A from and <laughs> in <Yep>. the acronym. <laughs> well, it's VAPA. Yeah, not VAPA. Yeah, you know, okay. Because of that, whenever I whenever I get these things onto a piece of board, I will put Vapa on. I will, awesome. that'll be on there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and when I come up to Colorado next, you just owe me one beer. Hey, as soon as the Rona's gone, we need to get you up here. So. Yeah, yeah. Or you down here? You actually need to pick up some stuff here. I do. I have a I have a ton of crap back in Texas. <laughs> I have like three people with 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 my shit lying around there. I need to go and yeah. get stuff. So, okay, so. Um, 
I've been starting to look at that so long, long, oh man, how long ago is this? Like two years now, maybe longer. There was that Jeep fan controller project I made. Oh yeah. Um, and I never really ended up using it, mainly because I just went with a different direction with how I wanted the electronics, the auxiliary electronics in the Jeep to to uh, work. Was that was that the board that had your like fifteen stage pie filter on it? Yes. Because yeah. <laughs> we were, I was just experimenting, like how, like, could you stick the dirtiest power input, basically like automotive twelve volts, like just off the garbage. alternator directly? Yeah. Yeah. And could you filter that to something that you couldn't even tell? Yes, you can. It was like. <laughs> It was like an LC, 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 LC filter, right? Yeah. Something yeah. like that? Yeah. Looking back, we probably could have done something a lot better, like an active filter. Oh, for sure. Um, but this was just a fun experiment, just to be like, okay, what if we just threw a pie filter and a choke and then a lot of, lot of uh, inductor and capacitance and kind of just playing around with it. Um, and that did work. The only problem with the... the um, board was I just went with a different direction with the overall projects, so I stopped working on it. Well, I started looking at it again a couple uh, weeks ago, mainly because I was looking for like aftermarket body control modules. I think I've talked about this before a couple like a couple months ago, but uh, a body control module in a car is like what controls like your window motors, like for your like going like when you press a button. The current for that motor isn't going to that switch. The, the switch sends a signal to the body control module, and the body control module goes, okay, that means lower that window. Older cars, the switch is the switch that's actuating the motor, which works until you get a little corrosion in that switch, and then now your windows don't work. So I've been wanting to kind of develop a body control module for the wagon, because uh, it's the old school style switches. And actually for the, the uh, checker, the 65 checker. And this one probably be using the checker first because it doesn't have any wiring in it. So it has to be rewired anyways. Whereas the wagon, it all kind of mostly works, the wiring. Um, so the checker would be the first one. So I've been looking at this project again, trying to figure out, okay, what do I need it to do actually in the end? Because the Jeep fan controller project had a bunch of like sensor inputs and stuff. And I'm like, okay, I don't really need that. I have gauges. Gauges tell me what the temperature is or like what the RPM is. I don't need that. I just need to be able to be like, okay, if I'm outside the car, I, I want to have remote locks. Okay. So I press a button, it unlocks. Um, and I also would like it if I had a, uh, a button on the outside too, where I could press a button and it lowers all the windows. Because I'm not a big fan of remote start. Which is, you know, you press a button, your car starts up. Especially since this is a manual and um, it doesn't have a neutral switch on the transmission. So it won't know if the transmission's in gear or not. Which would be probably bad if you try to start it remotely. Yeah. And it was in gear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I kind of I want a, a remote control aspect to this. So that's what I've been I'm doing some research on. And... I started searching for solutions that exist out there, and there's not a lot of solutions, and they're kind of chunky, I guess is a good way to put it. They're not really designed that well. It doesn't feel like. And they're also really, really, really expensive. Um, like the remote controls are cheesy-looking plastic blobs, and um, and they're not really, I guess, integrated at all either. Like A lot of them just control other relays. None of them have relays like on the board hmm. or using MOSFETs for some reason. Like you could just use solid state and it'd be completely fine. Um, so I think that's where I'm going to go with this project is I'm going to investigate a way to do a wireless control for it. And the big key is the remote control also has to be really low power. Cause I don't want to be swapped. I don't want to have to come home and put this thing on a charger. Right. I want to be able to like, okay, a coin cell lasts, you know, maybe a year or two. Sure. Um, so I haven't really found the microcontroller yet I want to use because basically it needs to have, uh, it only really needs one-way communication. I'm not too worried about preventing someone from hacking it because it's 
only one of these is going to exist in in the world. <laughs> so um, don't really have to worry about that. And um, I also don't want to do it like the cheap way, which is like use 433 megahertz and just kind of like blast out a signal, kind of like your uh, garage door. Yeah, that's that's um, the Arduino way, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, mainly because also that 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 would actually probably be the easiest solution, but I'd rather not do it that way. I kind of want some kind of uh, some kind of wireless stack that's running and running some kind of like authentication with it, not just hammering out bits over the air. Yeah, like just blasting out the code to anyone who wants to actually like read read it, or like you're driving down the road and like your car just starts opening up people's garage doors. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know exactly how how true this is. My mother was saying when she was younger, um, garage door openers didn't have too many different codes. And, and in her neighborhood, she would drive down the street and open other people's garage doors. Oh, no. It's, that's it was like three true. different codes or something like that. Yeah, most of them had, uh, you would open up and it either had three or four dip switches that you would set the code to. Right, right. So... Um, and most people would just like flip them all one direction. So, yeah, because that that's easy. Yeah, it's easy. Um, yeah, we actually had our garage door was opened that way before. Really? So, yeah. Nice. <laughs> so that that's I, I want to hear if anyone in our Slack channel or on Twitter has got suggestions on how to make that work. Preferably, like maybe a quick example way of doing it um like i don't want to have to sit there and like code up like three or four days worth of stuff to make this work like maybe something i can get working in an afternoon with some dev boards um just like the communication like and i, I guess like 30 feet range is probably fine sounds so. like you want 433 man yeah i know actually that it that would probably be the easiest way it would totally be the easiest yeah yeah because you you would just have to blast out a serial stream of like this is this is me this is me and then like the car is just you know always because it's got that big battery so it could always be it's just receiving. listening all the time yeah. yeah yeah but then someone drives by with their their garage clicker and like opens up my door <laughs> so oh yeah that's also another thing is the reason why I need the remote control um, it's not for automatic locks because I I don't really care about automatic locks. Um, but it's because on the checker, it doesn't have, it's at 65, so it doesn't have side mirrors. It only has one rear view mirror. Nice. And so the only thing on the side of the body is the door handles. And so what I want to do is take those door handles off and shave them. It's called shaving the door. And then you'd have to get in, you just press a button on your remote and the door pops open. <laughs> That's great. So um, I need I need this to be able to do that and they make remote kits and stuff for that but i want to control more than just the doors and it's like everyone's like oh you have to buy this and then this and then this and now you have like eight boxes shoved up underneath your dash and the wiring harnesses are all over the place and hey, come on that sounds like something you would love uh, i want i want one box to control them all <laughs> have you ever looked into the technology or do you know what the technology is behind um uh like key sensing and things like my wife's car knows when i'm nearby and uh you know it'll it, it's rear view uh, or side mir mirrors move out it's like hello steven you know that kind of crap like i freaking hate that i oh I you try adjusting the seat and it goes we can't let you do that steven you know I, I i don't like the fact that my wife's car has like user logins i don't need to log into the car like literally like I it, it, we could set it up where it's like oh it's me driving so it knows where my seat position is versus my wife's and stuff. My mother's old Mercedes had that, but it wasn't like you logged in. You just pressed a button on the dash. It had a one and a two, mm. and so you could set up your all your the profile, angles. Your driving profile. yeah yeah your driving profile with one or two yeah, and it, that was actually kind of cool because you can just sit in and then press one and then it would set up the mirrors and then your seat and your steering wheel j just right i just 
You know, every time I see those things, anytime I see like superfluous luxury in that sense, all I think is like, that's going to break and that's really expensive because that's on a motor and it's going to cost like, I, but I, I bet you it's a thousand bucks to replace one of those side view mirrors as soon as it stops rotating, you know? But it's a luxury item. You don't care how much it costs. Yeah, right. Well, I do. <laughs> oh, you do. Yeah, I give a <laughs> shit. My truck doesn't have any of that fancy features. My, mine has a nice little steel rod underneath the seat, and you lift it up, and the seat moves wherever you want it to go. It does have a screen in it, though. I installed that, actually, because I wanted Bluetooth. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's... I, that's the big thing is I need to figure I need to basically settle on like this is the architecture microcontroller architecture um, that I want to use. I'm hoping Silicon Labs has something I can use, but I'm not I'm not uh, holding out too much for that. So cool. So Stephen, yeah, been, what is uh, going on with the CNC? Uh, Last week you were. Cutting calibration stuff. I think that was actually two weeks ago. Or was that two I, weeks well, ago? Well, okay, so I've been cutting lots of calibration. You know, that's what the, one of the things that really sucks about a CNC. It, unless, okay, not uh, if you've ever built a CNC from scratch, that, and, and that includes, like, assembling kits of CNCs, then you'll probably understand exactly what's going on here. Like, every little thing you do impacts its performance, right? Like, the tram of the head, you know, the uh, whatever rails uh, system you're using, like, has to be bolted on just right. Like, everything has to be right for everything to be right. And, mm -hmm. like, even if you're cutting in one spot on your table, like, is your linearity right? Is it is it cutting the same size in the opposite corner of the table kind of thing? So I've been playing a bunch of games with that. Like, technically, I, I would say that the CNC has been done for a while, like, but I've just been getting super anal about getting as much accuracy as I can out of this thing. And, and from, for the most part, I'm getting, I can easily hit five thousandths of an inch. I've been consistently getting uh, three thousandths or less of an inch for, for most of my cuts. And then in a couple of situations I get worse, I get like 10,000 uh, errors, which for the majority of the stuff that I'm doing is so far beyond what I need it to do. But it's still like I'm just chasing after that dragon of accuracy, you know. Like, <laughs> and it's really fun. I've just been having way too much fun with it. It just does kind of suck because I'm just um, imagining it's a dragon holding a, a micrometer. <laughs> the the overall rigidity of my machine is okay at best, which means that I can't really take it super fast, um, and that's not necessarily a problem. However. If, if, with feeds and speeds based on the material that I'm cutting um, the majority of the feeds and speeds that I'm going for um, are faster than what my machine would accept in terms of moving the actual gantry now I can move it that fast it's just that the accuracy suffers because it um, it jerks flexes and, and it, and it wobbles yeah so the the solution that I'm coming for uh, at this is to go with bits that have fewer flutes. So if I have fewer cutting surfaces, I can actually run my bits slower in terms of it, the actual feeds. And my my RPMs, I have virtually anything on tap. So I'm that's not really an issue. And I, and I actually picked up a, a you know, I I'm confused because I've I've always called these one flute, but I've been recently been seeing them called O flutes or zero flute. It's basically Think of taking a razor blade and twisting it into a helix and then sticking that on a on a you know shaft. I use these things almost exclusively at work for cutting aluminum. And they're awesome because they have one big cutting surface and a really deep channel in them. So as you're cutting, it makes a big chip and then it throws it and it gets rid of it and gets it out of the pocket. And the more flutes you go the kind of like the, not kind of, the spacing in between each flute gets a lot smaller and it packs more uh, chips into there. So if you have a CNC like mine where I have like no chip evacuation whatsoever, I don't even have compressed air on it, I basically have like a weak vacuum pulling chips out of it. Like having a, uh, a, 
a bit like this is going to be significantly better because I can take bigger chunks, make bigger chips, and then throw them out and hopefully throw them in the direction of the vacuum and get rid of them, uh, which will be nice. So just arrived today. I'm going to start doing some test cuts later tonight on this. And I, it, you would be surprised. Like I trash went out last Thursday and my trash bags were just filled with six inch by six inch squares, like just tons <laughs> of them all over the place or like almost six inch by six inch squares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the trash man's out there measuring them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I actually, uh, the, the machine was not cutting 90 degrees. It, it was slightly off. I, I, I think I measured it at like, I don't know. It was less than a degree off. If across 39 inches in the Y axis, it was less than a 16th of an inch off. But that's enough to make me annoyed uh, for what I'm going for. And it really should be pretty much perfect. So mm. I actually, I came, I, I came up with a, an idea where I, I cut a slice of MDF in, in just the X axis. So I have a straight line. And to that, I clamped a 90-degree triangle, those 90s that I actually um, machined at work. And mm -hmm. then to that 90, I clamped a straight edge that went across the table. And then I could drive the bit across the straight edge and see how far it was off. I cut the shaft of the, of the gantry, moved only, uh, while the motors actually still held one side of the gantry is fixed and the other can slide so I can basically adjust the angle of the gantry, made it perfect, and then welded it in spot, and it's pretty nice now. So, fun little... You know, that, honestly, that's been, like, the best part of this is, like, coming up with solutions on how to actually <laughs> fix the issues with the machine. It's like, every time I cut something, I'm like, shit, there's another problem. Now I got to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> But no, it's it's good, and I'm hoping with this uh, with this bit tonight, I'll I'll kind of commission the machine and uh, call it done, like no, done done. As in, like I'm done messing with it. Now I can make things with it. Yeah, you, you're gonna take that that champagne bottle and hit it, and it's gonna skew the base. <laughs> yeah, somehow it's like not ninety anymore. Yeah. <laughs> no, so um, so last weekend I actually cut a cabinet, a um, uh, like not a cabinet but basically a shell uh for mm. a, for an amplifier and and it came out pretty nice uh there was a few small issues with the the z height not being perfect and probably me not measuring perfectly my um, raw stock before i put it on there mm -hmm. so you know a little bit of fixes there and i'm going to recut that same cabinet this weekend i have the old one and then this weekend i'll do the new one i'm going to do a comparison to see like are all these things i've done every single night on this damn machine making it actually better or is it just worse in a different direction now? no it's gonna look exactly the same oh god i'd be so mad if that was <laughs> if that's true no i can already tell that it's that's different you know one of the things though is like the, the I had to come up with a new clamping system to actually mount the spindle to the YZ carriage, so, and and the thing is, I came up with something that that's an aluminum plate that has an eighty millimeter clamp for holding the spindle, but my YZ plate is not perfect, so the the head isn't perfectly in tram, and and so the bit is not exactly ninety to. Uh, to the table and I actually measured that today at work I, I brought it in and put it under a microscope because on on only like if you cut a square on one side of the square only one side you can see very small step down edges mm -hmm. uh, which means that in that axis the bit is angled just ever so slightly and it's like a tenth of a degree I don't even know if I'm gonna care uh about about adjusting that but what i've been doing is is loosening the the gantry and sliding um feeler gauge shims into it to just ever so slightly change the angle of the bit in yeah, relation yeah. to the table and i think i right now i have a twenty-two thousandth spacer which is a pretty big spacer uh but i think i overdid it a little bit so i might just slide a 20 in there and not even test it and be like i'm done we're good, you know. It's <laughs> probably good. Yeah, yeah. It's probably good. That's that's a great way of putting it. Probably good. Close enough, right? Yeah. 
I'll put that on the commissioning thing. Sign my name. Probably good. Probably good. <laughs> like like I said, like the entire reason I built this this thing um, is to make things that don't require this form of accuracy at all. It's mainly mm-hmm. more to have a machine that can make them so I can play video games while it makes them. And <laughs> swear to God, that's what I've been doing, which is great. It's a beautiful part about CNCs. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the great thing about a 3D printer is that you, you, once you get it dialed and you click print and then you come back a couple hours later and your part's done. Yep. Or it's a big mess of spaghetti, either or. I mean, <laughs> I, could, I could spend two hours behind a bunch of woodworking tools or I could spend two hours playing video games and make stuff. Yep. So the uh, Pentor project. The uh, LED Rev 2 design is completed. I'm using those uh, APA 102C new 260s I tested, what, mid, mid last year. So, so give us the verdict. Are you happy with them? Yeah, they work great. We had, I had 100% yield through our reflow process. Um, yeah, they work great. Nice. Um, pretty happy. We tested them with, we like took the strand and like wrapped it around like the coils and stuff, like tried to induce as much EMF as possible into the data connection. Cause it's just, you know, five volt logic going out to these, these chips. And it's right next to 50 volt high current stuff, right? Ginormous inductors that are being turned on and off really fast. Just hammering it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, your EMFs all over the place. Yeah. It didn't care. Nice. So that that's actually what I thought of. I'm like, okay, the worst case scenario is you mess up a couple bits and the hue is slightly different. You're not going to tell. No. no. And so, yeah, it worked great. Um, also, how but, often are you writing to those LEDs? A lot. Yeah, so if it was off for one cycle or even a few cycles, who cares, right? Yeah, and, and it's all, it'll only be a couple of bits off, so it wouldn't be... I actually want to be able to, like... Because you can write bits out and then at the end, basically just write it twice and see and then sniff the end, right? And see if you have any bit error Hmm. at the end. Um, That'd be kind of a cool project, but I haven't done that because it seemed to work fine. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if we ever come across any problems with them, we'll do that. But, um, you know, it's pretty it's pretty cool to see, you know, the old version having like, I don't know, 50 percent yield on a good day uh and then going to this newer version where it's like okay it seems like they fixed it all yeah i think they just changed the materials of the lenses and the uh the plastic enclosure yeah they just changed that material to handle the higher temperature yeah and things work great cool so i'm going to get those ordered and made um and then uh i'm working on a motor controller for the pentar board so the pentar board's got like four sockets at the top and we designed them so that you can pop in either a DC motor controller or a stepper controller. So you can control four steppers or you can control eight uh, DC motors or any variety mixture of those. And so this, this allowed it to be more expandable and most pinball games for like the toys and the, yeah, like rotating uh, houses and, and doors and stuff like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we uh, the reason why we didn't put those on the board is because we wanted to be able to support motor, DC motors and steppers and not take up a lot of real estate on the board like because they're pretty big I mean this takes up like 15% of the board real estate alone just these areas that you can put parts in mm-hmm. um, and most pinball machines will only use a couple of these so we didn't want to have to populate you know all that that hardware right so we're making them like little modules you use kind of like a pululu module for a stepper controller a yeah. stepper motor um very very similar to that and actually we're um i think it's compatible with the stepper controls that's the check this should be compatible the only thing is it's not compatible with is dc we couldn't find a dc motor controller that fit that same footprint and so we're just going to make our own for that I think we it works with the standard Palulu um, stepper motors. That's cool. Be, stepper motor controllers, which would be nice. Those are like so a you're ju- you're dollars. just sending power and then step and direction signals and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. And then and then it has a header that comes off the board 
so you can plug in a you know big chunky connector to it right so yeah we'll see how that works out nice um, like expandable next modules week, and stuff yeah hopefully next week i have that um all working nice be good so i got a, a cool little thing that uh, I was working on um, or, or just kind of like messing around with at work. Uh, and it's just like a quick little analog trick uh, for circuit design. If you want to, you know, uh, sometimes it, it's nice to start looking at things in a way that you don't normally expect. And for most applications, you wouldn't do this, but uh, clipping op amps um, and in feedback. So, Take like an inverting op amp. If you go beyond its rails, it'll eventually clip, right? And mm-hmm. and if you take an inverting configuration, uh, sometimes it's called a, a virtual earth mixer. You can um, or virtual ground mixer. Like if you just have just a regular inverting op amp, the inverting terminal is you know I'm using air quotes here. It's zero volts or it's ground, and that's not actually ground. That's the op amp you know maintaining its feedback loop and keeping that at a uh, zero volts effectively so as soon as you get that op amp into clipping uh it doesn't it no longer has the capability to actually maintain that virtual earth so that node that previously was seen as a different impedance to everything that's plugged into it it has now completely lost all of that and is now now everything that's plugged into it sees the impedance of all the other things that are connected into it. And so just in a creative way, I've been using that recently and, and not necessarily with the clipping of the actual op amp. I've been using Zener feedback, uh, Zener diodes or just regular diodes in the feedback such that if you're in the conduction range of the diode, then the op amp has control over itself. But as soon as it clips, you don't have control anymore and you get a bunch of voltage dividers on the front end. So I've used that recently to make some really cool kind of distortion circuits that uh, are have like voltage controlled clipping and things like that, uh, such that once you're past a certain limit, then the op amp loses control and you can do things with that. So just some cool little analog tricks. If you're designing weird things in analog, just remember that you don't always have to play by the rules. And uh, a lot of these textbook things happen with particular conditions, like an inverting op amp only is inverting if it's not clipping, or it's it's only like the feedback loop is actually only working properly, or all your equations for that op amp are working if it's not clipping. So just keep that in mind. And so you're talking about... Um you're using the Zeno diode to induce the clipping, then, right? Well, I, I use the Zeno diode of exceeding the rail. You're you're using the Zeno diode, and voltage. the entire reason why I did that is because the rails are not defined in an op amp, uh, and if you're if you're designing a product, you want it to be more consistent. So I, you know, a two or five percent Zener is way more consistent than just relying on the rails of an op amp clipping. So you, if if the clipping level doesn't matter for your application, then you totally can clip the rails of the op amp. Um, you know, there's other things to take into account if you're clipping the rails. I'm not saying just go and abuse your electronics, (laughs) but like, yeah, uh, if, if you have a Zener in the, in the output, you can, um, you can define what your clipping level is and then exceed that and have fun in that territory. You should have a uh, sound demo for us. Uh, yeah, I can totally do that. Uh, well, there's there will be some sounds coming out here soon. There's something that incorporates uh, versions of this technology. Ooh. Ooh. I'm looking forward to that. And so this week we have one RFO. And this is the Aero Electronics Launches European FPGA Developer Contest 2020. I guess with everyone staying at home, everyone's looking for stuff to do. Yeah. Well, apparently this went really well in 2019, so they decided to bring it back. Uh, so Air Electronics is doing, I guess, uh, it's a design contest similar to the Macrofab design contest. Yes. But you got to do another one of those. You know, maybe that's a summer thing. Yeah, maybe that's a summer thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. last year was in the summer too. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did late summer on that. Yeah. After the Rona, man, we got to get past the Rona. Yeah. <laughs> Stay at home, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Stay at home and, and start thinking about things to design. But uh, I, I saw this earlier today, This um, the Air Electronics uh, 
contest. It's pretty cool. Uh, so it's it's specifically for FPGA stuff. And uh, what kind of sets this one apart is that you uh, you apply to be in the contest, and if your project is selected, then they actually provide you with a development board, and you get to pick which development board you want. So you come up with the idea beforehand, write it all out, or write a general proposal, and then uh, kick that out to them. And uh, there's, gosh, how many is this? Uh, one, two, three, four? I think four different development boards, uh, all FPGA-based which is pretty cool. And uh, the projects can involve anything from software, serial, IP interfaces, and soft cords, to board modification, adapter creation, all kinds of other stuff uh, on this mm -hmm. list. So I think it's pretty wide open. So if you have an idea that is FPGA or could be implemented on FPGA, then uh, there's a pretty cool little contest. Well, and if you uh, <laughs> live in Europe. Yeah, I was saying is like, I don't live in Europe, but... If I did apply to this and got a board, it'd probably just go live in my dev board graveyard. You know, I, I have a drawer right here. In yep. fact, I've got I've got your your ice stick over here. Oh, that poor thing. <laughs> I, here's mine. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, right next to us. Yeah, right to my desk. So I can always open it up and look at all the things I'm not doing. Yes, all the stuff. Oh, I have so much MSP430 dev boards. Oh, my gosh. Because yeah. back, back in the day... TI would go to like Maker Fairs and they would just hand them out for free. Right. Yeah. So I just, you, you every day you'd, at the fair, you'd go around and get your free MSP 430. That's right. <laughs> Good stuff. Oh, yeah. Actually, that's one thing. I wonder if MSP 430 or one of the MSP lines has a uh, low power transmitter setup. Now you got more to go research. Yeah. I wonder if you could do. It'd be really nice if you would if you if I could incorporate the switch press powered it on and it could figure out if that was a button that it would it, you know that button is like open right door. So instead of like a it being a well I guess it would be a soft power at that point. Yeah, well you could make it a hard power too. Yeah. Cuz it's just it's just it boots up and transmits that signal on your button press. Cuz that's kind of like how a um, a single button, you know, 433 megahertz style garage door opener works. Yeah. It's basically, it when it powers on because that tax switch press, it just beams its information out <laughs> to the world. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, interesting things. So, that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dolan. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.